Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast for people living multicultural lives. I'm your host, Lori L. Tharps. I'm a Black woman married to a Spanish man raising three bilingual, biracial, bicultural children. I'm also a journalist and the author of the book, Same Family, Different Colors, Confronting Colorism in America's Diverse Families. Some people call me a cultural critic or a pop culture pundit. I call myself a diversity diva, and I'm really glad you're here for this final episode of season four of the podcast. On episode 42 of the show, I'm giving a lesson on colorism. At this pivotal moment in American society, as people grapple with dismantling racism, I think it's critical that folks understand that racism has a crafty cousin named colorism. And I believe that if we don't recognize the role colorism plays in maintaining a white supremacist society, then this fight we're in to dismantle racism will never be won. If you want to slay the dragon, you have to kill all her helpers too. So, Please stay tuned for Colorism 101. But first, I want to take a moment to recognize this very special day. Hello, Melting Pot community. This episode is being released on June 19th. Not only is June 19th my mother's birthday, happy birthday, mom. It's also Juneteenth Day. And while in the past, Juneteenth Day may have passed by with nary a bit of recognition, this year, Juneteenth is getting all the love. In fact, in the state of Pennsylvania, where I live, Governor Tom Wolf recently made Juneteenth a state holiday. So no, today's episode is not all about Juneteenth Day, but since this is the melting pot and we like to talk about all things multicultural in America, I couldn't not take a moment to talk about Juneteenth Day and what it's all about. So I'm going to give you a quick explanation because I know a lot of people really have no idea what Juneteenth is even about, much less how to celebrate it, or even if they should celebrate it. And since we are at this pivotal moment in America where we are really super focused on Black Lives Matter because Juneteenth is all about Black life, again, I feel like we got to talk about it. So really quickly, let me tell you what Juneteenth is really about and why I think it's important for people to recognize Juneteenth, whether they you know, have an official party or not. It's important that everybody knows about Juneteenth because learning about Black America's history is how we decenter whiteness in the telling of this nation's story. That's part of the work that we all should be doing right now as we work to undo racism. So in a nutshell, Juneteenth is a celebration of the emancipation of America's enslaved Africans. It is literally a celebration of our freedom and independence. You could almost think of it like Black America's Independence Day. The crazy thing is, Juneteenth does not mark the day Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, nor does it mark the day when that proclamation actually became official, which was January 1st, 1863. No. Juneteenth actually marks the day more than two and a half years later when the black people of Texas were finally told that they were free. You see, word hadn't made its way down to Texas that slavery had been abolished almost two years previously. The word didn't make it to Texas until June 19th, 1865. 
Now, there are many different speculations as to why word didn't get down there until that time. But I mean, it all comes down to basically that the slave owners there wanted to get more labor, free labor out of their slaves before they had to officially recognize the Emancipation Proclamation. The Union soldiers, federal government didn't have enough troops to actually go into Texas and enforce the law until that time. So on that day, when the enslaved Africans found out that they were actually free, there was a party. I mean, it wasn't a real party on that actual day. People were like, just like, let me get the heck out, out of here. I'm not a slave anymore. But from then on, June 19th was recognized as that day of liberation, of freedom. And it was honored and celebrated by African-Americans with family gatherings, lots of great food, particularly barbecue and strawberry soda. And I'll get back to that strawberry soda thing. But there was always an emphasis to have the elders of the community talk about the hardship and what was used and needed to overcome and the resilience and strength of the African-American community. So again, it was a celebration of emancipation and independence and strength of the African-American community. Now, quickly, like I said, I want to just explain that strawberry soda thing because strawberry soda is often associated with Juneteenth celebrations. And I just discovered that the reason Juneteenth celebrations always have a red drink or strawberry soda actually harkens all the way back to a West African tradition to celebrate special occasions with a red drink traditionally made in West Africa with either hibiscus tea or the cola nut. So hibiscus and cola nut drinks were still made in the Caribbean throughout enslaved times. And it also made it a little bit to the southern states of the United States. But by the time we were doing our Juneteenth celebrations, the idea of having a red drink for celebration was still there, but it wasn't always hibiscus tea. Sometimes it was a homemade strawberry lemonade. As time progressed, Kool-Aid was introduced and then eventually red sodas. Any type of red drink was considered appropriate for this celebration. There was also even ideas that the red drink over time came to symbolize the blood that was shed as part of the, you know, legacy of the trauma of enslaved Africans. Anyway, over the years, Juneteenth celebrations became less and less frequent for multiple different reasons, economic reasons, people spreading all over the country, not being able to gather together in their families, coming back to original homesteads and things like that. But there was a resurgence of Juneteenth celebrations with the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And then again in the 1980s, when you had a proliferation of kind of like African-American sentiment and ideas, even the term African-American, you know, you had these different time periods where there would be spurts and resurgences of Juneteenth celebrations. But needless to say, these Juneteenth celebrations were pretty much held in African-American communities. And even still, I can't say that celebrating Juneteenth was even universally celebrated in the Black community. Growing up, I might have gone to one or two Juneteenth uh, like community celebrations, but had very little knowledge of what we were celebrating. And we never celebrated it in my family. And in fact, it was even not a joke, but it was almost a joke whether or not you even knew what it was or if you celebrated it. So there wasn't a universal celebration of Juneteenth. And it's only recently, I think, that people are really, you know, starting to recognize how important celebrating Juneteenth is. And like I said, in my state of Pennsylvania, Juneteenth has just been recognized as a state holiday. And I think it's so important that people recognize Juneteenth and understand the history behind it if they want to understand American history and understand the place that African-American history plays in this nation's story. So 
I would love to see Black Americans really embrace this opportunity to celebrate the resilience and strength of the community. And I would really like to see non-Black Americans not necessarily celebrate Juneteenth because it may not feel like one's holiday to celebrate, but they can definitely honor it. I mean, if you get an invitation to a Juneteenth celebration, by all means go, but it can definitely be honored by, you know, reading, watching films, you know, having your own smaller celebration, if you will. But the main thing is to honor it and to honor the resilience of Black Americans. I mean, I'm not Irish and I celebrate St. Patrick's Day. I don't actually celebrate it, but you know, there have been times when I have participated in some kind of celebration of St. Patrick's Day or Cinco de Mayo or some of these other cultural celebrations. I think if the celebration is done with honoring in mind and not exploitation, then by all means, anybody and everybody can recognize the resilience of the African-American population in this country. So I'll share some links in the show notes to articles and stories about Juneteenth being celebrated, not just in the United States, but all over the world and how people have taken the independence and emancipation of Black Americans and found their own way to honor it. So you might get some ideas from there. All right, so that's your Juneteenth lesson. Now let's turn our attention to colorism. Okay, here we go. Lesson number two for episode 42. We are talking about colorism. I'm going to say that I'm putting my professor's hat on again for today's episode because my goal is to give people a basic understanding of what colorism is. I want to define colorism, tell you what it looks like in everyday life, figure out why we need to be talking about colorism at this precise moment in our history, and of course, share some solutions for how we do get rid of it. So putting on my professor hat, hope you guys are listening in like students and, you know, taking notes if you need to or want to. But again, my goal here today is to give you a basic overview. There's no way that I can explain everything about colorism in a short podcast episode, but I do want to give you enough that you can take your your anti-racism work to the next level. So first, let me give you my reasons for why I feel like I'm qualified to talk about colorism. It's not just because I'm a diversity diva. In 2016, I wrote a book about colorism called Same Family, Different Colors, Confronting Colorism in America's Diverse Families. You hear me say it in every intro to the show. So I wrote that book, like I said, in 2016, and I considered it the perfect follow-up for my first book, Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America, where I talked about the, um, I co-authored that book actually, and we talked about the history and culture of black hair in the United States. And because hair texture and skin tone form the kind of foundation of most identity politics discussions and controversies, and because I was often talking about skin tone as we talked about and researched hair, it felt like a natural follow-up to really dive into colorism for my second research project. So In the book, Same Family, Different Colors, I take a historical look at the origins of colorism in the African-American, Latino, Asian-American, and mixed-race communities, and then I share the stories of people from those unique communities who grapple with colorism in their own nuclear families in modern times. 
The thing is, this final episode was supposed to be a discussion about colorism in the nuclear family since this season was supposed to be all about family and because I like to talk about how colorism manifests in families and how, as parents, the kind of job we have to make sure our children aren't born with negative ideas about their own skin tones. But because we're in the middle of a revolution right now and people are hungry for information and need to understand the nuances of our race problem in America, I thought I would take this opportunity to make my colorism discussion more of a colorism 101, more of a global and general perspective of colorism so people would understand just how complicated dismantling white supremacy really is, that racism isn't the only ism that is at play here. So for anyone who wants to be a freedom fighter in this war we're in right now and who really wants to make a change in themselves and help others, we have to talk about colorism. So lesson one, and there's just five lessons today. So lesson one, what is colorism? So the definition of colorism is and this is my definition, you can find different definitions, but colorism at its most basic is the preferential treatment given to someone based on the color of their skin. Very basic. It's treating people differently because of the color of their skin, not because of their race, not because of something that it says on their you know, identity papers or anything like that. It's literally treating someone based on the way they look. You know, I see this person has very dark skin or they have very light skin. Usually the preferential treatment is given to people with lighter colored skin over darker, but not always. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But the author Alice Walker is credited with coining the term colorism in 1983, and it is a widely used term. However, the dictionary only recognized the word colorism last year. Yeah, imagine writing a whole book about colorism and Microsoft Word constantly telling you that you spelled it wrong. Anyway, some people define colorism differently, but the point is that colorism does exist. It is very real, but one of the reasons why it is so problematic in that it is not necess- hasn't been recognized as a word is that if you don't have a word for a problem, then the problem often doesn't get solved. So Some people define colorism as a problem that only happens within communities of color, which is another reason why colorism isn't kind of talked about in public forums like racism is, because people think that colorism is an intraracial problem, that it's a black problem or some sort of Latino problem or it's something that really only happens within the black community itself, that like dark-skinned black people discriminate against lighter-skinned black people or dark-skinned Asians are lower on the totem pole with other lighter-skinned Asians. So if people are aware of colorism, they think that, oh, that's just something that happens within those communities. But that is really not true. And not only is it not true, it's a really detrimental way of contextualizing colorism. And it allows white people to remain divorced from any type of discussions about colorism, including how do we solve it. The truth is, if you are a human being with eyeballs that function, literally, if you can see then you are probably perpetuating colorism or colorist thinking. It could be conscious thinking or unconscious thinking. But if you judge people or place value, either good or bad, based on the shade of their skin and their physical features, then you are practicing colorism. Lesson two, what does colorism actually look like in regular life? Okay, 
We now understand what colorism is. It's preferential treatment given to people based on the color of their skin. And remember, keep this separate from racism because you can have a person who is defined racially as black, but if their skin tone is very, very light and they can pass as white, then their experience in the world is not one where they are being treated as a black person as they walk through their day-to-day experiences. They are being treated with preferential treatment because they look white and people treat them as a white person. Likewise, a person could be, let's say, mixed race, white and black. But if they look more black, they have more darker characteristics and features, kinkier hair, darker skin, a wider nose, then they are going to be treated differently than if they, you know, had more Caucasian features. So colorism, how does it manifest in regular life? My definition of colorism includes whether you're being discriminated against because your skin is light or because your skin is dark. That's what colorism is at its most basic. But what we see in a society that is, let's say, founded on a white supremacist ideal, we know that in the United States, people with darker skin are usually receiving the lower end of any kind of opportunity. In the United States, it has been repeatedly proven that skin tone plays a role in who gets ahead and who does not. And there are multiple studies that show whether we're talking about job opportunities, romantic opportunities, we're talking about prison sentences, everything is impacted by skin tone. A University of Georgia study found that employers of any race prefer lighter-skinned Black men to darker-skinned Black men regardless of their qualifications. So a lighter-skinned Black man could have a high school diploma and a darker-skinned Black man could have a college and even master's degree diploma. And the lighter-skinned man, irregardless of his qualifications, would be selected for to be hired over the darker-skinned man. Sociologist Margaret Hunter wrote in her book, Race, Gender, and the Politics of Skin Tone, that Mexican-Americans with light skin earn more money complete more years of education, live in more integrated neighborhoods, and have better mental health than darker-skinned Mexican-Americans. Researchers Lance Hannon, Robert Defina, and Sarah Brooke found that Black female students with dark skin were three times more likely to be suspended at school than their light-skinned African-American counterparts. Those are just three examples, but in every single quality-of-life metric, people of color with lighter skin do better than those with darker skin. And that's been proven time and time and time again. For some real life examples, if those, you know, haven't quite convinced you that colorism is real, just think about people in pop culture who are in prominent positions and you'll notice a trend. Many of these people fall on the lighter side of the pigmentation scale. And I'm talking about all areas of popular culture. Think about the black women who kind of stand above all else. Beyonce. Aisha Curry, Kamala Harris, Tracy Ellis Ross, all of them, very light skin, very successful. Latinas like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Jennifer Lopez, Cardi B, Shakira, Chief Justice Sonia Sotomayor, all light skin. Asian Americans like Lucy Liu, Lana Condor, Ali Wong, Priyanka Chopra. I mean, for every person, you know, you may think, well, what about this person? What about this person? Of course, there are exceptions to the rule, but overwhelmingly we see that the people who kind of make it in popular culture in the United States 
have lighter skin. And this is not a coincidence. This pattern has been like this in the United States since the United States was founded because our country was founded on principles that glorified lightness and demonized darkness. Now, while people with lighter skin overwhelmingly receive preferential treatment in society, I do want to point out that they are also often ostracized, isolated, and victimized in their own communities and accused of being not a real member of the tribe. So talking about colorism is complicated. I don't want to negate the fact that people with lighter skin also suffer from colorism. And that basic idea that people are making assumptions about people based on the color of their skin and not on the quoting Dr. King, the content of their character is problematic for everybody. But in this moment that we're in right now, where we are trying to undo racism and dismantle white supremacy, we really have to look at how colorism continues to make us favor people with lighter skin from communities of color. And all of this stems from placing false meaning on the tone of our skin, which in itself is so stupid because skin color differences are literally nothing more than the result of evolution. I mean, stop and think about that for a second. How is it that we have placed meaning on how smart or worthy or intelligent people are when the color of our skin and the curliness of our hair is nothing more than a biological evolutionary adaptation to different climates, right? So when human beings started roaming the earth, some tribes were more exposed to the sun and they developed more melanin to protect their skin, thicker hair to protect their scalps. Those who lived in colder climates needed less melanin so they could absorb more sunlight and not die from vitamin D deficiency. It's literally nothing more than a biological adaptation. And yet as a species, we have decided to use skin color differences and hair textures and things like that as some sort of value judgment. Why did this happen? Lesson three, why does colorism exist? You know, you can't fight a problem if you don't understand its origin. So let's figure that out. So the easy answer for why colorism exists is white supremacy, which is my favorite answer for almost everything these days. You can just be like, it's white supremacy's fault. But the more specific answer, the more detailed answer is Colorism exists because white supremacy exists, because colonialism existed, because racism exists, and because implicit bias is part of the human condition. As human beings, skin color matters because we are visual species and we respond to one another based on the way we physically present. And as I mentioned, over time, skin color has become a loaded signifier of identity and value thanks to the European creation of white supremacy. Understand that white supremacy was developed to establish a value system where whiteness was valued and darkness was devalued. And that was a system that was created. White supremacy was not an accident or a natural occurring phenomenon. White Europeans, and I'm t- everybody's kind of implicated here, the British, the Spanish, the German, the French, they were all involved in working very hard to establish a scientific classification system for human beings to support their race-based enslavement of Africans and indigenous people and their continuous raping, pillaging, and colonizing of lands 
inhabited by dark-skinned people. It's been called different things over the years. Scientific racism, manifest destiny, survival of the fittest, eugenics, whatever you want to call it. The point is Europeans created this system to justify their insatiable greed and absolve themselves of any type of blame. I mean, how can you blame someone for conquering a lesser species? That's just survival of the fittest. That's just manifest destiny, right? And if we can prove that there's some sort of inherent worth and goodness in white skin in European people, in the lightness of our pure sacred skin, then obviously those lesser humans deserve our, if nothing more than benevolent neglect, at minimum, they deserve, you know, whatever comes to them. So colorism exists as a byproduct of this very human creation of white supremacy, which while abhorrent, also means though that we can dismantle it. Colorism is not an immutable part of the human condition. It's not like implicit bias where we all have these, we're going to take in information and, you know, we can't help but have some sort of bias. Colorism is not an immutable part of the human condition. It's an invention. It is an invention created to keep certain people in power, to keep certain people out of power. And just like any other bad invention, though, like Rio hair products, I'm dating myself, but anybody from the 80s remember Rio hair products or Milky Way Light Candy Bar, which was a candy bar that was supposed to have fake fat in it, did not work well, had horrible results. Just like those bad man-made products, we could throw colorism away and start all over again. Who's with me? Good. Moving on to lesson four. Who suffers from colorism? Easy answer, everybody. I already mentioned this before, but basically if you have eyeballs and you can see color, then you can perpetuate colorist thinking or act on your own implicit bias towards lighter skinned people. Recently, a friend of mine who is a um, PR consultant was working with a major company. And I say recently, I mean within the last week or so. So this major company, its major brand wanted to work with a black activist to show how down they were with the Black Lives Matter community. They decided that they should work with the influencer who identifies as biracial, but black and biracial. But she was so light skinned that she could pass for white. Now, I'm not saying anybody's blackness is only about their skin tone, but Not only was this person's politics a little bit sketchy, but they chose her because they felt she was a safe choice. They felt safe with this person. And again, how does one say we are down with the Black Lives Matter movement and we have selected the person who looks the least like an actual Black person? It was very difficult and my friend had to kind of give them a quick colorism 101 lesson to make them all kind of think about why they had selected of all the influencers, why this was the person they selected to represent Black America for their company. So people used to think that colorism was an interracial thing, but the people who actually suffer from colorism as anybody who visually looks at people and makes a judgment call based on their skin tone, which is pretty much anybody and everybody. So we also know that colorism is a global phenomenon. So it's not just the United States where colorism reigns supreme. In fact, communities of color all over the world struggle with valuing whiteness or lighter skin tones and devaluing those with darker skin tones. So all over Latin America, all over 
Asia, East Asia, Southeast Asia, where skin whitening and skin brightening is a really, really serious issue. Not to mention the bleaching cream industry is a massive billion dollar industry that continues to grow. And be clear that when we talk about who suffers from colorism, I mean, the victims as well as the perpetrators, this is not just a beauty issue, nor is this an issue that only affects women. Men Women, children, anybody who breathes in the smog of white supremacy is susceptible to both thinking less of themselves because of the color of their skin and or valuing people outside of their circles who have lighter skin as somehow better. This is a global problem and people of color have work to do to kind of undo their own thinking about what is better, you know, having darker skin or having lighter skin. And white people have to undo their own thinking as well as to why they think that working with somebody who's black, but not that black physically, or someone who's Latino, but not really dark skin Latino, or why they feel more comfortable making overtures to people of color, but the ones that are, you know, more white presenting. All of us have those thoughts and biases in our minds because, again, we are all drinking in hundreds and hundreds of years of a society and culture that placed whiteness above all else. So lesson five, what do we do to get rid of colorism and why now? You know I was going to give you solutions, Melting Pot community, right? You know I wasn't going to just leave you here with this big old problem and say, go fix it. I'm going to tell you how. But first, I want to talk about why now. Why is this the perfect time to really dig into colorism and try to do something about it? As the world is literally erupting over the death of George Floyd specifically and the poor treatment of Black Americans generally, it's incredible, but people all over the world are already examining their own role in perpetuating an anti-Black bias. Because The biggest byproduct of white supremacy and colorism is a anti-black bias. And when I say anti-black, I'm like anti-dark skin bias, but it all stems from this same backwater basin of what's at the bottom of the white supremacist hierarchy. It's blackness, it's darkness. And every culture has found a way to kind of demonize that darkness. So From India to Jamaica to the Philippines, I've been getting, I actually have a Google alert on colorism because studying colorism is my thing. And I am getting more articles every single day than I have in like, oh God, I don't know, for whenever, because people are seeing like, this is our moment too. This is our moment to stop demonizing our darker skinned brothers and sisters, to stop spending thousands of dollars on lightening our faces, our genitalia. And yes, that's a thing. And not hiring and not loving people who have darker skin. We see people in African countries and the Caribbeans doing the same thing while they're fighting for Black Lives Matter. They're also saying, well, why are we still lightening our skin? Why are we still saying that, yeah, we support our Black brothers and sisters in the United States, but let's talk about our own anti-Black bias. If Black Lives Matter, why are we trying so hard to be non-Black ourselves, to be browner or lighter? In the Philippines, same thing. It's people are saying like, well, if we're supporting this movement, you know, saying like, if Black Lives Matter, don't darker Filipino lives matter as well? This whole moment is making a perfect sweet spot for all of us to really, really examine the anti-Black sentiment that 
is the kind of other end of white supremacy. If white supremacy is at the top, then anti-blackness is at the bottom. And right now, there is literally a global awareness that white supremacy has made dark skin the false enemy and light skin a false god. And it's not like this information wasn't known before, but the confluence of energy around the Black Lives Matter movement is literally forcing people to see that dark skin matters too. So now is this moment. If you have all these people around the world opening up their minds to trying to figure out how to, quote unquote, undo racism, dismantle the institutionalized racism. And like I've been saying, we have to start with ourselves. You know, any kind of change is only superficial if we're not actually getting at the root of why we make these types of decisions. I believe that there are some really violent, awful racist people who really, really operate with a racist agenda. But I believe there are far more people who probably are listening to this podcast right now who maybe make racist or colorist actions, but not on purpose because it's just because they haven't examined their feelings, their thoughts, and their quote unquote implicit biases. It's because they don't know the backstory to Juneteenth Day. They don't understand, you know, how scientific racism was actually like written down and disseminated amongst slave owners to keep enslaved Africans feeling less than and to literally deliberately tell them how worthless and inferior they were because of the texture of their hair, because of the color of their skin. People don't understand or know this history. So when they make these types of decisions, when they you know, make overtures, when they make decisions about who to hire and so on and so forth, it's because they have been brainwashed, because they have been influenced by, again, the white supremacist smog. So I really believe that we can throw away the bad and recreate something new, a better society where people are informed, where people are ready to think about their own biases and do something about it. So The easy answer to ending colorism is to normalize difference. It's to go back to our earliest understanding of difference in skin colors when as young children, we simply recognize, hey, this person has darker skin and this person has lighter skin. It was a noticing, not a valuing. And just like it was once upon a time before Europeans circulated the erroneous idea that skin color was a measure of a person's worth instead of a simple biological response to distance from the sun. Before scientific racism was a thing, before Europeans tried to, you know, create these kind of hierarchies and every different European group had a different way of doing it. But before that was a thing, there was no valuing of dark skin over light skin. People like like our youngest children do. It was, oh, that person has dark skin. That's kind of interesting. Oh, that person has white skin. Hmm. Does it feel any different? But there was no valuing of it. The anthropologist Nina Jablowski, um, I recommend anybody who wants to learn about how we developed meaning for skin tones to really you know, read her work. She has spent much of her career researching the evolution of skin color and its meaning. She wrote a book called Living Color. And in that book, she argues that when human beings of different hues first came into contact around the Mediterranean Sea thousands of years ago, their relationships and business transactions were not influenced or impacted by skin color. According to what research shows us, Nobody cared about skin tone. She says, in fact, that the association, and I'm quoting her here, she said, quote, the association of color, of skin color, with character and the ranking of people according to color stands out as humanity's most momentous logical fallacy. In other words, like I said, skin color-based bias 
is just stupid. It is literally something that Americans have done that is just, it makes no logical sense to associate somebody's skin tone and hair texture, for example, with somehow their value as a human. If they're smart, if they're you know capable, if they're talented, to say that I can look at somebody's skin tone and tell that, it's just dumb. It's stinking thinking, as my professor mom likes to say. So essentially, we end colorism by educating ourselves about its origins, right? Like once you understand how ignorant the actual idea, how absurd the idea of the idea that you can tell something about a person by the color of their skin is the first step. So read Nina Jablowski's book. Read my book. Follow the stop colorism hashtag on Instagram. Just educate yourselves. I mean, you don't have to read 100,000 books. Just read one book. Read my book. Read Nina's book. Um, And if you don't like books, like I said, find some articles on the Google. I will link to some in the show notes. So we recognize that because we all breathe in the smog of white supremacy, we all have implicit bias and we've all practiced some form of preferential treatment to a person with lighter colored skin. Once we recognize that fact, then we can start paying attention to our present and future thoughts and reprogram them. We pay attention to the world around us. We pay attention to examples of colorism. We remind ourselves that melanin is a gift from evolution and nothing else. The lack of melanin simply means that somebody's ancestors probably lived in cold caves away from the sun and nothing else, right? We remind ourselves all the time that that's all that means. And then we do the work to actually get to know somebody or to find out what their actual credentials are to find their value and their worth. And we don't depend on something as foolish as the texture of their hair or the color of their skin. So recognition. So educate and then recognize our own implicit bias. And most importantly, those of you with little humans in your home that you're responsible to educate, and if they're not in your home, maybe you're a school teacher, we have to start early normalizing difference for them. We don't want to shy away from noticing. We don't want to push them or shun them or silence their noticing lighter skin or darker skin, straighter hair or curly hair. We should, in fact, point out these differences. We should point out the beauty and worth in all hues. We should buy different dolls and puzzles and books that show off many shades of the human family. Of course, be careful that you don't overcompensate and make all dark things better than all light things because that would just tip the scales in the opposite direction. And in my book, Same Family, Different Colors, I spoke to people where that happened, where families thought they should really make their darker child feel really special, but then their lighter child ended up feeling less than and developed a complex of their own. So the answer to colorism is not to glorify blackness at the expense of lightness. It is to glorify difference, that the reason that we are a beautiful species is because of our diversity. We want all shades to be smart and worthy and beautiful. That is the message. Normalize difference and honor difference. Now, as we enter in this activist phase of our lives right now, when we are all trying to do better and do more and do hard things, we must speak up and speak out when we see colorism in action, okay? That is all of our jobs with all forms of racism. And again, at this moment when people are really active about really supporting Black lives and the lives of Indigenous Americans and the lives of Latinos and Asian Americans, those who have been neglected and oppressed 
we have to be aware that this oppression and that this discrimination can take many forms and that we may think we're doing the right thing because we're hiring Black people, we're hiring Asian Americans, we're hiring Indigenous people, but are we doing these things and still perpetuating an idea that the people we are hiring and celebrating all have lighter skin and all look more like Europeans? Think about that. If we are recognizing that Black Lives Matter, if we are recognizing our own bias, then we have to recognize where and how we are perpetuating what essentially is white supremacy. Colorism is essentially a byproduct of white supremacy. So recognize again that everybody can be susceptible to colorist thinking, but also understand that my work as I try to make sure that I'm doing what I need to do to dismantle colorism may look different than the work that a white woman has to do to dismantle colorism, which may look different than what a Latina woman has to do or a Korean American man might have to do, that it's all going to look differently. So like I keep saying in all of my work, don't try to fix others before you try to fix yourself. Start with your own internal thoughts about these issues. Work on yourself before you work on others. Okay? Whew! That is the end of lesson five, and that is the end of my lesson on colorism. Again, this is something that I have been talking about and working on, I say really since, you know, the late 90s when I started working on Hair Story, because the idea of identity politics, the idea of who gets preferential treatment, who gets discriminated against, and why, and where does this all come from, started with my conversations about hair and morphed into more specific conversations about colorism. But I've been thinking about these things and talking about them and seeing the the roots of why we believe this idea that whiteness is better than darkness or the simple devaluing of dark skin and features that speak to non-European heritage. As we really, you know, decide what we want America to look like in the future, as we take part in the reshaping of our society, which again, I think that's where we are. We just have to make sure that we don't forget that racism has this cousin called colorism. And if we're not dealing with colorism as well, then the dismantled racism isn't quite done. It's like if they were taking a tumor out of somebody with cancer, but they left a little piece in. That little piece is colorism. And we have to make sure that we are excoriating the colorism as well. Thank you for listening to Melting Pot Community. I hope people got something out of today's lesson on colorism. Please, please, please check the show notes for links for further information about colorism, some books, some websites, some um, hashtags to follow, and some videos that I actually made about people dealing with colorism in their own families. So please take a look at those as well. Like I said, I'll put all the links in the show notes. And if you have any questions about colorism, I promise to answer them if you simply leave your question in the comment section on the show notes page of the blog, myamericanmeltingpot.com. So look for the show notes for this episode, episode 42. Leave me your questions in the comments and I promise to answer them. Thank you so much for listening, Melting Pot community. I so appreciate it. This is the end of season four. We made it. 
I hope you enjoyed it. And even though the world decided to lose its mind in March, I am so glad I have this platform to work it all out with you. But that being said, I am ready for a break. Ah, I'm tired, Melting Pot community. I'm tired. Um, I love doing this show, but it does take a lot out of me. So normally I would take the entire summer off, but there's just too much happening in the world for me to go silent right now. You know, I always have something to say, but I just need to take a short break. So I will be resting. I'm putting air quotes on that. Um, until the end of June, but expect to hear my voice again in July. I have some special episodes that I want to share with you in July. So be sure to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. So you know when I start releasing my summer episodes. Like I said, it will be sometime in July, probably earlier rather than later. But again, just subscribe, hit the subscribe button on your phone, on your uh, podcast app. So you'll, they'll be downloaded automatically to your phone. And of course, I will continue to post on the blog and on all of my social media accounts while I'm air quote, resting. So be sure to find me on myamericanmeltingpot.com and that's where you can find all of my um, social media handles as well. Now, one more thing you can do while you're waiting for the show to resume is to take the time to write a rating or review for the show. Yeah, you have like, I don't know, at least two, three weeks while you're waiting for me to come back on the air to write a little review or a rating. Now, I'm going to think of this like, you know, your favorite public radio station. You know how they usually have drives where they ask people for money so they can stay on the air? Well, I don't want your money, Melting Pot community. Okay, let me rephrase that. If you want to give me money, I am happy to take it to support this show because this show actually does cost money to produce. I have a wonderful editor and I have other costs associated with this show. So yeah, if you want to give me your money, there is a donate button on the blog perfectly happy to take that money from you. But all I'm really asking you right now is to leave me a rating or review because ratings and reviews are like currency for podcasters. So the more ratings and reviews we have, the more people find the show, the more listeners we get, and then we can parlay those listeners into encouraging advertisers to advertise on the show. So again, you don't have to give me your money. If you would just leave me a rating or a review, which literally could take less than one minute, I would be so happy. Right now, I only have 31 ratings and 11 reviews. So I would love to come back in July with 50 ratings and 20 reviews. I mean, those are random numbers I just pulled out of my head, but it would show me that this show is helping someone or at least entertaining someone. And that's really why I do this Melting Pot community. I hope to entertain, to educate, and to inspire everybody to do more, to be their best, and to learn about this multicultural world we're living in. So I'm thanking you in advance for writing a review or leaving me a rating. I really do appreciate it if you can take the time. Thank you. My American Melting Pot is produced by me, Lori L. Tharps. Our editor and technical director is Brad Linder. Our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you, Melting Pot community. I really do appreciate each and every one of you. Please be well during these trying times and always remember to live your life in color.